Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Suffer Map. Um, this is Tyler Dumont and this is my friend Matthew Stanley with me. Um, we're gonna be talking a little bit about, um, well, a lot of things. Modern statecraft is kind of where we're gonna start. Uh, I've been reading this book, Seeing Like a State by James C. Scott. It's kind of like a work of, you know, it's like a work of like sociology, like historical sociology, you know, mixed with some like critical theory and um he leans heavily on some of our favorite philosophers, you know, like Foucault and such. Good measure. Um, and there's this really interesting idea at the very beginning that I wanted to get your thoughts on, Matthew, where he talks about how one of the central problems of early states was an attempt to make uh, diasporic communities and kind of nomadic communities within their uh, geographic areas more legible to kind of like translate this like very... Uh, diverse group of people, oftentimes from very different tribes, different tongues, different people groups, right, um, into a much more formal commonality, right? Um, so yeah, I wanted to use that as a way to like kind of kick off our conversation. I mean, what do you think? What are your thoughts on that? Well, if I'm a government, I think one of the biggest problems that I have on my hands is how do I know what I'm in charge of? Right. Like, like how do you know what is within your rule and what is not? If you don't even have that basic understanding of, okay, this is mine and this is so-and-so else's, then like, what are you doing? So this right. project of legibility um, is is certainly interesting uh, when, when we approach it from the question of like, yeah, if you have wanderers moving through your land, um, if you have folks who are constantly moving around, um, they're hunter-gatherer types, or they're maybe shepherding folk, or they're um, sort of you know, warring types, you know, they don't really grow anything. They just pillage and plunder. They're, they, these present a variety of problems to states. Um, not the least of which is <laughs> how do we get taxes from them? You know, like that's one of the big questions. Right. Like how do you tax somebody that you can't track and doesn't have like a consistent output, quote unquote. So I think there's a lot of interesting problems there for a state of um, what am I actually in charge of and how can I tax it? Yeah. And you know, it, I guess that you know, for us in the United States, it's kind of a difficult problem for us to wrap our heads around because there's so much, you know, our our society is so homogenous. Despite how how you know diverse the American society is, you know, we all kind of like you know English is a lingua franca. It's like you know we've we've just kind of appropriated so much of the world around us that it's just it's very easy to kind of go from state to state to state and have a common language, for example. But if you look at like What's really interesting to me is if you look at like European states, you look at like places like, uh, you know, uh, Britain, Great Britain, Britain, right? I mean, you, you know, the differences in culture, say, for example, the differences in like an accent are so much like the, the boundaries of that accent are like so much smaller than they would be in like, you know, if you go to somewhere, if you go somewhere in Cal California, most of the accents you're going to encounter are just going to be just like yours, right? Even though you're like 10 hours away. But if you travel, you know, two hours north in one direction, you might find a radically different accent to yours if you're in Great Britain. Um, what's really interesting here is that oftentimes in early, early societies, like pre-modern societies, like medieval societies, for example, I mean, a, a day's journey or even half a day's journey would oftentimes bring you to into a community of people that spoke almost a complete that spoke a dialect that was so different from your own that it was almost impossible to if not impossible to speak to them right and to converse and to trade with them right and so 
you're 100% right on this idea of like taxation. But I also think that like what I see here is like the burgeoning of the global society, the burgeoning of like the global world and like trying to like unite all peoples together for the sake of things like trade, for example. Yeah, this idea of um, because we're all interconnected, we're more diverse is actually an illusion. It's right. You're pointing out that as we get more and more connected, what we start to build are more common structures, which actually sort of push out and exclude diversity in reality, you know, because I mean, what we have now is we have a capitalist market that, um, that spans the globe and fundamentally economic relations are the same as they are in China in Thailand and Egypt and America. There's, you know, there's a central bank currency. There's a central bank fiat currency. There are bankers, they make loans, people have take out loans, they purchase capital they employ people uh, like th- this sort of this model is now the model that works everywhere. Um, and it was not the model <laughs> for how uh, how things worked elsewhere. Yeah. One really interesting note that James Scott points out in this book is how I mean, because he basically critiques like, OK, so there's like this. The work of statecraft has been around for a long time. And, you know, all states kind of, you know, they encounter some common problems, right? We've mentioned a few, the problem of trade uh, between their diverse countries and societies, right? Uh, Things like conquest is another, um, yada, 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 right? But there's also this issue of like high modernity that uh, Scott talks about, where he talks about how like there is this, um, I mean, which I think, honestly, I I would probably link to capitalism, consumer, the kind of the consumer mind, the consumer drive, right? one of the one of the values of legibility, especially for the high modernists and for capitalism and the and the work there, is that the legibility of a society brings about the opportunity for like massive, large scale, what he calls social engineering, um, and like like kind of like massive corporate works of a state, right? Where otherwise, with you know pre-modern societies that wouldn't actually be possible this is something this is somewhere that Foucault is extremely relevant because uh, part of what I mean and I haven't read Scott's book but it's important to look at the difference between like pre-modern government and post and modern states because I really do think the concept of the state as it currently operates is different from how a government Um, saw itself in the past. And the one way that Foucault kind of identifies this is he identifies older um, forms of government, like, you know, monarchy, empires, these sort of things. Um, He identifies them as having the right over death. And what he means by this is that their, their, their exercise of power was primarily in the exercise of violence to curtail things so that the, the state basically used violence as a way to set limits and the place that the state exercised its power was primarily over the moment of life or death. And that was sort of how you identified who's the sovereign. The sovereign is the one who decides on the matter of life or death. Whereas Foucault portrays the modern state as having the power over life, which is a shift in perspective 
which produces this drive towards legibility. There wasn't really a drive towards legibility. There was a desire to um, solve these problems of, okay, how many people do I have and who do I tax? Those problems were always there, but there's this intense drive towards legibility in the modern state because the state doesn't see itself as exercising power primarily at the point of life or death, but it sees the whole realm of life as an engineering project. Like the goal is no longer we attempt to keep violence out of our community, but the goal is now we actively create a state of human flourishing. And that shift in perspective he describes as like from a people to a population the shift, like the, a nation rule, like a state rules over a population, but a population is a set of t- statistics. It's a data set that you can manipulate to produce social outcomes. And that perspectival shift from people to population is what I think kind of opens up that drive for legibility because you have to make a population legible in order to control and to tweak and to engineer like you talk about in order to produce flourishing in your society flourishing yeah uh, definitely and i i think this engineering is such a great word for what we're talking about here and i think this is also this point that scott makes is kind of it's it's i mean maybe he's not like I, i actually don't know a whole lot about him as an author or him as an academic or a scholar but he he just reads very much like a critical theorist right and because this is like one of the main projects of critical theory is to, you know, it was kind of a, in some ways it was like a reaction, although it's, there are many people before me that have created some sort of like myopic vision of what critical theory is. And it's just simply too complicated to do that. But one of the, one of the many, many aspects of critical theory as a practice is pointing out how Orthodox Marxism kind of misses the mark historically in that critical in that orthodox marxism does not recognize actually how far the influence of capitalism has gone that it is no longer just a system of like no longer just a system of trade or commerce or you know production means of production right all these terms are still useful but now we also have to begin talking about ideology the way that like the consumer mind begins taking over things and and de- and devoting them to a particular ideology of flourishing right as you say although flourishing might be a difficult word to fit there. Uh, what, one thing I love um, is Zizek's comment that he made one time is that he sees common visions of communism as actually the internal unconscious dream of capitalism. So he sees this idea of a perfectly free and equal society where everybody is perfectly productive without the antagonisms of class and discrimination or of social hierarchy, but everybody goes about their thing and does their work and finds fulfillment in it and is perfectly productive and joyful as the sort of internal fantasy that capitalism runs on and would love to achieve, but it can't. But what's interesting is he sees that that vision of communism is sort of internal to capitalism. It came about the same time capitalism did as well. And what we need to do is to figure out like, okay, where has capitalism even um, infiltrated those fantasies? Like the idea of the person being productive is still at the center of the communist fantasy right. of the world that they envision. And it's like, whoa, 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 
why is productivity at the heart of our vision of being human? That's what we need to question. Right. And okay, so this actually brings up, oh man, that's, that's like a perfect segue into what you and I all, like kind of very, you know, we didn't mention at the very beginning, but we, we really want to talk about as well, which is epistemology. So, okay, so this idea, let's talk about this idea of engineering, right? This idea of like, kind of like how the fantasy constructs this like vision for the future and the way that societies should operate, right? It's very interesting you bring up this this image of kind of like this perfectly symmetrical system of like relations between people and their work, yada, yada, yada. Um, so Scott points out in his book that the work of the high modernists, especially when they were given the sense of this, this, um, when they were given authoritarian power in the state and they had this, this pursuit of making the state legible is that what they often did is they created a necessarily, a necessarily schematic, uh, civilization for people to live in, right? And he has this quote, he says, designed or planned social order is necessarily schematic. It always ignores essential features of any real functioning social order. This truth is best illustrated in a work to rule strike, which turns on the fact that any production process depends on a host of informal practices and improvisations that could never be codified. By merely following the rules meticulously, the workforce can virtually halt in production. In the same fashion, the simplified rules animated plan animating plans for, say, a city, a village, or a collective farm were inadequate as a set of instructions for creating a functioning social or order. The formal scheme was parasitic on informal processes that alone it could not create or maintain. So, okay, a bit of a long quote, but I, I think it's really valuable because we kind of want to talk about the work of knowledge and in particular, I think in, in the case of this conversation, legibility and how in its work of attempting to understand the other, it also ends up ignoring essential features of the other. Zizek gets into this a lot, and I'm just going to kind of sort of parody him here, but he sees at least two things that this sort of engineering is not going to capture. Like that quote's really great. It's basically like, if you attempt to design a system, it's inevitably going to miss the unspoken rules that are allowing the system to work. And Zizek makes that precise point that there's in every context, there are the rules, but in every context, there's also the unspoken rules about how you apply the rules. There's always the rules about who the rules apply to and who they don't or when they apply and when they don't. And so there's, there's always the rules and there's these meta rules that the system doesn't usually know about or understand how to apply. So you're going to miss out on the meta rules, but what you're also going to miss out on are the things that look like unnecessary like foibles in the system that actually keep the whole thing running. So when you think about like um, one thing that Zizek makes a point of, like he talks about um, like military films, like he, like he talks about full metal jacket and uh, where there's like, in the military, there's like basically two ways you can go. You can either sort of fully um, be integrated into the machine and think like a soldier, and that will eventually drive you crazy, ending up in kind of the suicide um, that is depicted of one of the fellow recruits early on in the film. Or you can develop through the, the enjoyment of these certain absurd like songs and jokes and habits, you can develop a cynical orientation where you can tell jokes and make fun of your own situation 
in one moment and then the very next moment mercilessly kill Vietnamese people and like not feel the disconnect there. And it seems like the jokes are kind of just ancillary to the situation and the like, and the kind of like uh, the funny absurd songs that they sing while they're marching are just kind of like, okay, you know, you could take them or leave them. Like it's just, it's a foible of the system, but actually those foibles that look unnecessary are the things that keep the system running. And so that's one of the major things legibility misses is it sees those and says, Oh, that's not essential to the system because it doesn't see how the system's really working. You know, something um, I get really excited when I read stuff like this and when we talk about stuff like this, because I've been running up against this wall in philosophy and theology that I, I feel like not enough. I mean, maybe it's just because of the conversation that I'm having, but I feel like not enough people are talking about it, which is this, this like obsession with symmetry and this craving, what Wittgenstein calls like the craving for generality, right? There's like this effort of many thinkers to like, and it's not just thinkers. I mean, it's like, I, I feel like it's just like a human phenomenon at this point to kind of categorize everything perfectly and to find ultimate symmetry between everything and to um, find like a generality, right? Like um, Wittgenstein in the blue book, he talks about how, uh, and we've talked about this before, he talks about how when Socrates asks, what is knowledge? He says, it's interesting that he does not even consider consider as a preliminary investigation to point out the various different types of knowledge when he's asking, what is knowledge? Because Socrates isn't interested in types of knowledge. He's interested in capital K knowledge, right? Um, and so I, I guess like I get frustrated with this because, well, uh, life is not symmetrical. It's it's and life is ex- exceedingly complex. And in fact, there's no end to the suffering that humans experience simply based upon the fact that our world is not symmetrical, that our world is not unified, that it is not you know built out of these perfect words and these perfect systems. You know that real life is messy. Wittgenstein is a great example. I'm really glad you brought him up because his, even his view of language really challenges our everyday operation. Um, I mean, his view of language where it's built up of these discrete language games is really like, it's almost like language is just a patchwork of these uh, relatively independent um, operations that all kind of manage to shade in together. So like the, you know, when we're, we're having a philosophical conversation here and we're sort of striving after propositions, but you know, in another context, I might be issuing commands and those aren't propositional in nature. Um, his example in philosophical investigations of the, the, the construction workers is slab. He's not referring to a slab. He's saying, get me a slab. And when the other construction worker hears him say slab, he goes and gets him a slab, you know? Right. But it's not about, it's not, you're not discussing, you're not assuming slab has a nature. You're not like you've even dropped verbs and any and conjunctions. It's like say a sound, produce an outcome. Say a sound, produce an outcome. It's just a different game because that's not what you and I are doing right here. But language has the capacity to do that in certain contexts when it's used certain ways. When you're playing a different game with it, I I think my point with that is, 
And I think my point with that is that I really, really agree with you that we do not stop and question this assumption that there has to be a the answer, that there has to be right. a the system, that there has to be a the way, or that um, you know a symmetrical system is more likely to be true. Like that just doesn't seem to hold up. Like why do we assume that? Why don't why don't instead we assume that there's a lot of different phenomena out there? And if we study them, we might start to notice patterns. But why do we assume that there is a the knowledge, a capital K knowledge, um, or a the nature, you know, like a capital N nature, um, rather than a variety of interacting systems? So I'm with you. I think that we we have not sufficiently plumbed the depths of the complexity of the world because we have assumed assumed that it is this harmonious whole, you know, we, we've employed right. the idea of the machine, like the clockwork, the clockmaker analogy that was so popular in the 1700s with deists has blinded us that the world is not like a clock. Right. This is, so going back to Levinas, I, I mean, I talk about, I talk about him quite a bit, but for me, Levinas was massive here. So was Wittgenstein. But Wittgenstein kind of like placed this like, he, well, Wittgenstein is also like way harder to read than uh, Levinas. Uh, and so like Wittgenstein, because I had read him first, like planted the seed in my brain. And I was like, oh, wait, like maybe I'm wrong about all this stuff. And then I read Levinas and Levinas says that the work of Western ontology is the reduction of the other to the same by the interposition of a middle and neutral term, Right. And this like it blew me away because I I could understand like what Wittgenstein was talking about, right? When he's talking about like the craving for generality, I'm like, oh yeah. And like it kind of like addressed a lot of the frustrations that I had with like metaphysicians and like uh like Thomists, but it didn't and like classicists, but it didn't like give me a why. It didn't tell me like why it is so important that we hold this idea of knowledge or we hold this idea of understanding the world like why we continue to like pursue this idea of like a world of forms. Right. But I, th I think it's because the world in its complications is very difficult. It's, it's, it's very rough. It's very hard. The fact that our world is not symmetrical is a source of suffering in and of itself. Right. Um, in a variety of different ways. I mean, that's a complex idea altogether, you know? Um, but what Levinas is able to point out is that, that tension and that, that like, humans when they encounter that tension and that fraughtness and that that drama that anxiety of a world that they cannot perfectly encapsulate leads humans to attempt to reduce that otherness to sameness by just imposing language on it right as a way to or imposing neutral terms as a way to like understand or attempt to understand the world around them. You're on completely on the right track when you bring in language, because what Levinas is describing the process of substituting one term for a third term is precisely what language does. Right. The, the linguistic mechanism is to generate a sound and a, and a corresponding mental symbol that are coupled. And then you replace external realities with the symbol so you can then traffic in the symbol. So like this substitution, like uh, 
symbolic systems are systems of some substitution where instead of, you know, like the sound I isn't me, but when I say I am, I mean me, you know? Right. And it's like, it's about me. I, I had, I had to replace myself with the I in order to externalize and make myself legible to others in a social context. So like language is this making legible of things and the mechanism for making things legible is by substituting them for something else. Ironically. Right. Interestingly enough. Yeah. Very interesting. And I think that this, this, this obsession with uniformity and this obsession with, uh, you know, capital K knowledge, for example, ends up ignoring vital information, right? And it ends up, you know, you and I talked about in the past of like the like the classicist position that there are you know there are many scholars that trace this like invisible well actually invisible line between the classical period and they kind of just like trace that throughout all of western society up until the modern day right and they say well if you lose the classics then you lose western society right um and there's this professor i can never remember his name for the life of me but he he's he, he makes this point he says well if if we gave you like you know, the ancient Greek language and we dressed you up like an ancient Greek and we plopped you in the middle of ancient Greece, you, they would murder you. They'd kill you within a couple of days because the way, their way of living, their way of being is so fundamentally different than anything a modern person can even conceive of, right? There's like no way to translate that, right? But in this, in this like constant attempt to like find this continuity between the classical period and, you know, the modern period, they just lose all of that. Like all of that vital information is actually gone. The fact that like the ancient Greeks were actually fundamentally in all the ways that are important, different than us. Right. Thought about the world yeah. differently, operated differently. Anyway, go ahead. Like Aristotle is always sort of portrayed as like this, this gentleman, like almost like he's like this bourgeois scientist, you know, like a, like an Isaac Newton or something, but like he wore a, a sheet and shat in a hole like right he's so he's so freaking different like you know i mean he was like socrates was like doing it with young boys and was like going to drinking parties and like <laughs> couldn't stand his wife and was standing up and like you know arguing with people in the streets like this is not acceptable behavior nowadays like no you know what i'm saying we're not even gonna get into diogenes you know um because that guy was insane <laughs> Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, I mean, like the it's it's not and it's not just to say like it's not just to say that these people were like more primitive than us, although that is true. It, well, in some ways, right? And it's not just to say that they had different customs. Well, maybe it is enough to say that they have different customs, but like their entire way of living, the way they understood the world, the way that they related to one another as people, the way that they understood things like sexuality, like those you know the most important structures of their life are incommunicable to us now as moderns, right? As contemporary people. And that's Yeah, essential. we have this fantasy that we read them back through. I mean, we go and reread Homer and we read, um, you know, the Aeneid and these classics and we read them through the lens of like, these texts were gathered together and they're socially momentous and these people are somehow the ancestors of our values. But I mean, you read McIntyre's After Virtue and that just it kind of blows that apart. You see the shift of virtue in different contexts and you see it change over time. And you begin to see how just how different we are from the Greeks. I mean, that was part of Nietzsche's point too. I mean, Nietzsche was like, Nietzsche wouldn't see the Greeks 
as our ancestors at all, you know, he would see us as like fundamentally ancestors of the Jews and Christians. Um, Whereas like the Greeks and the Romans were like, like their values were very different from like a Protestant Lutheranism, you know, that gave birth to modernism. Right. They were like, they're these pagans who like, you know, I think Nietzsche was trying to rediscover their ethics and their way of life because he was so fed up with sort of the incipient mediocrity of his peers. And I think that this brings out a great, a great point about knowledge itself um, and how this attempt to make, you know, you know, this, this idea of like state statecraft aside and the work of like states to make their populace more legible. What, what I see as intimately related is this idea of knowledge as something which attempts to make the world legible and how in the same way which statecraft in its attempt to make their populace legible misses vital clues and vital information about the people that they govern, knowledge can also operate this way. Maybe, um, Matt, maybe go into like some detail on that and kind of explain your views on what knowledge is. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Sorry, Socrates. Um, but <laughs> no, but it's um, I think about that this conversation that we had in Discord recently. Yes, this is um, what I'm thinking about as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, um, ben posted the, that interesting thing about the um, the the gateway experience that the FBI was investigating. Right. Um, like the FBI was looking into astral projection and stuff and really interesting. They were looking at um Basically, like the theory kind of comes down to everything's made of energy. Energy is always vibrating at certain like wavelengths and frequencies. So if you can basically change the level of the vibration of the energy in your body, you could basically move to a different energy register, which would basically functionally be a different plane of consciousness or existence. Um, So, uh, you know, actually not a terribly unreasonable theory, to be frank. Um, But one thing that like in the CIA's analysis of it, they're like, oh, man, this would be great because we could probably travel across time and space and go investigate our enemies. And so like the whole kind of purpose of the project was to get better knowledge. But I, I basically made a comment of like, no, no. What they're describing here is the obliteration of knowledge because they're looking for they're looking for this absolute. They're basically like, okay, we realize human beings have limits, but if we could get our energy to vibrate at a high enough level, we would transcend those limits into like an into some sort of absolute. We'd be gathered into that space basically where particles are both you know, a wave and a particle at the same time, like light is a particle and a wave at the same time, where it's the point at which reality is non-exclusionary. The absolute is non-exclusionary, includes every possibility in itself simultaneously without any contradiction or division. Um, And that would be that sort of highest plane of energy where, um, you know, Schrodinger's cat is both dead and alive simultaneously. But that, like to reach that would be the total obliteration of knowledge because knowledge is necessarily built on limiting. Like I said, it's the knowledge is built on this system of substitution 
We make things legible through substituting them for symbols. I just think about, I think about like, um, think about like an x-ray, like in order to get knowledge about something in your body, what they have to do is to set up a contrast between two things. So they set up a like a um, paper, which is like photoreactive, and then they shoot x-rays through your body. And then they the paper just like reacts based on receiving more or less x-ray. And then they extrapolate from that what the inside of your body must look like. But in order to get that knowledge, what they had to do is they had to set up a series of contrasts. So the only way to make your bones emerge into the realm of knowledge is through setting up a contrasting object, which is the photoreactive paper. So what I find really fascinating is that knowledge, it requires the introduction of limits, contrasts, divisions, measuring, you know, like you have, you have a measuring stick, which is some sort of objective standard. And then you put the object up next to the measure and now you have quote unquote knowledge because you've compared two things. So knowledge is all of these functions of comparing and limiting and dividing and contrasting. And those are strictly impossible in the absolute. So kind of by my take is that a, this sort of this state of being in the absolute would be a total obliteration of knowledge. It would be a mystical experience at such a level that it couldn't even be spoken about. Yeah, language would fail, right? Because language and knowledge are intimately intertwined because they operate on that contrastive mechanism of substitution. Right. Uh, every time you define something, you bring out antagonisms, right? Or you say, or not, you, you bring out its opposite as well, right? You're When you say something about something, you're being both cataphatic and apophatic at the same time. You're saying, you know, when I say that this is a cell phone, I'm also saying it's not, not a cell phone right or it's not anything else that could that isn't a cell phone right um so these anyway i love this point i guess uh this also brings to mind stuff that we've talked about in the past as well when it comes to the almighty right when i mean there's like also this attempt for i think um theologians to I mean, what I consider to be like an over-definition of what God is, right? So they're like consumed with these questions of like his essence and his being and his, uh, and all this stuff. But what's so interesting is that when God himself speaks through, say, scripture, all of those moments when he has an opportunity to define himself and talk about what he is, he deliberately confuses the question, right? So when Moses asks, he says, who, who, will, who should I tell the Israelites sent me? right? Who sent me to you guys, essentially? And he says, tell them the I am has sent you, right? This obfuscation of identity. And Jesus does this as well, like throughout throughout the New Testament as well, right? Um, it seems very clear that in an encounter with the absolute, with the, for example, an encounter with the divine, language becomes less and less and less useful. On the one hand, I agree with that. And on the other hand, I am sort of also amazed at the role that language does seem to take on because in a way i think what is revolutionary about christianity 
is the way in which language is dignified in it. Mm. I mean, That's like where, where Jesus talks about himself as the word of God. And I think that kind of the one of the things that makes Christianity strange is that God did talk to people and God did normal things with words like make promises and uh, that God decided to make himself legible in his world as a human being. And he performed particular actions and he, you know, made friends with particular people and he wept and he whipped people and he handed out bread and he partied like these. He partied like a mofo too. That guy knew how to get down hundred (laughs) percent. That's like, he made himself legible in Judea in the first century. And so like, to me, like, I am I am fundamentally opposed to any projects that see us as needing to get behind or beyond language. Yeah, I'm with you there. I just think that like God dignifies language so much by making himself legible in it. But at the same time, your point is that there are certain points where he from within the paradigm of language makes himself illegible so like at certain points it breaks down he sort of reveals the inherent cyclical absurd nature of language at certain points by saying like i am who i am or i will be who i will be you know and basically exposes the um the nakedness of language as being circular and built on nothing it just is like like why is any particular symbol standing in for any other particular object. Well, I don't know. I mean, horse is horse in English, but it's Uma in Japanese, but like, there's no, there's no like right or wrong there. Um, So like at a certain point you're like, Oh wait, there's no inherent necessity to any of this. Like why one word stands in for another object. And yet God nonetheless says, yeah, but that's okay. That's cool. That's how I work. Um, Like that's who you are. And so that's where I'm going to meet you. And there's not this, I mean, like, even in the visions of the new heavens and new earth and revelation, like there's still conversation, there's still praise. There's even multiple languages still, you know, like this vision of Babel where the multiple languages are a curse that divide people. We see it, you know, um, picked up again in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit comes down, where suddenly everybody's able to speak in different languages, but understand each other. And then we see, you know, in Isaiah, this image of all of the nations streaming to God's mountain, singing his praises in their different languages. And so there's this, like, I really, language is eschatological and is not going away and we're not going to transcend it. And I think that we we try to transcend it at our own peril. And I think this is a fundamental commitment that I have is that like you, I am not interested in any project that seeks to transcend language or get rid of language. I mean, I'm, you know, a huge fan of the pseudo Dionysius and his point about how mystical theology is entering into the divine silence. And so I think that there is, you know, silence theologically, I think has, I mean, I'm a huge fan of that. I'm a huge fan of the pseudo Dionysius. He's one of my favorite theologians. Um, But, I also don't think that's his, his project is not to kind of get rid of, I mean, he still finds the usefulness in language, right? At least for my reading. Um, But I guess that like, one thing that I keep coming back to is that 
there's like these two attempts. There's like these dual attempts to kind of get over this problem. And one is to kind of abdicate yourself from language and try to find, it's like very Gnostic and all that. And then there's also this attempt where you say, oh, well, yeah, like knowledge is really bad at like capturing what things are. So let's get really specific, right? Like, let's get like really, really, really specific and r just drill down as far as we can. But that doesn't actually fix the problem. I think, at least the conclusion that I've come to recently, is that language is a fundamental characteristic of limit limitedness, of being a limited creature. Uh, being a being with limitations and what's so strange and paradoxical about the christian view and and the christian belief system is that god willingly takes that limitation upon himself at like even before the incarnation right so like there like there are multiple times when he's taking upon himself that limitation but it's just a fact of life that limitation is just it is what it is and there's no way that we're going to be able to like get around that and like you know, figure out a way to like actually talk about things as they are. You know what I'm saying? Like there's, it's just is what it is. We are limited finite creatures and we have the tools that we have. That's it. Yeah. We need to embrace our tools rather than, you know, wish we had better ones because we just, we have what we have, you know? And we also can't pretend that the tools that we have are not the tools that we have. Right. This is what f kind of frustrates me a lot when I, when I get into some conversations about like, you know, God's nature and his being and his essence is that there's like this, we're playing this game where we're, what we say we're doing is not actually what we're doing. Like people say, oh, yep. we're talking about yep. God, but no, you're just deciding how to talk about God and it has mixed value, right? Because you won't admit to yourself that your language ultimately doesn't reach where you think it's reaching, then, you know, the value in, apl in applying that language is limited. It just is, you know? What's happening in those kind of conversations is you're, is people are sort of functionally circle, circling around a void, which, you know, they would say like, oh, sort of that's the holy thing to do. I mean, I, I agree that, you know, fundamentally everything is as mystically absolute, you know, outside of language as, as God is, right. <laughs> um, because that's like the effect that language produces. It makes things it makes things become legible where they were not before. So presumably there's some aspect of them that is illegible. Um, but what would, you know, what's happening in that circle around the void is it's just, it's, it's like you say a language game that's not being acknowledged as such. It, it's saying like, Oh, we're talking about this thing. And it's like, no, no, you're just using words to circle around something you can't talk about. But my point about that, and it actually goes back to Pseudo-Dionysius, is that wherever there is silence, there is always a corresponding speaking somewhere else. Right. Every Absolutely. silence supports another discourse. There is never, there's never an absolute silence. There's always silence over here in order to facilitate words over there. Yeah, absolutely. So you have to ask, like, this silence, this void it exists here in my conceptual system. Here is the realm of a silent discourse. What does this silent discourse support somewhere else? Where is it producing a flood of words? Well, ironically, this, this void, this silence, it produces a ton of theological words 
that don't ultimately move us closer to God. I, I guess that brings up an interesting question, though. I think, you know, when we circle around our respective voids, as it were, I mean, what is a better use of language? How do we facilitate better language and better discussion around these things? Um, I, I mean, again, there's a few, there's many ways we can be using language, but we have to be talking about goals. You know, we have to be talking about like, like, what are we trying to achieve? And I think in certain contexts, I would want to see more words um, that facilitate collaboration, you know, right. around a goal, rather than more words that are designed to create in and out distinctions, you know, in like there, there are discourses which exists in order to mark people as either inside or outside of a community. Right, right, totally. You know, those are not interesting discourses to me. An interesting discourse would be more like, here's a problem that we like, like we've worked on defining a problem and now we are going to build consensus and we are going to collaborate on a solution that would, you know, that would be an interesting discourse to me or an interesting, interesting, yes, yes. A conspiracy is an interesting discourse because it's built around action. It's built around collaboration. Um, and it's also built, it, it also sees through the cracks in the dominant discourse too. Like I think one function of discourses is to get an outsider perspective on other discourses. Like you can step out of one discourse into another in order to get a different perspective on the one you were just in. So you could begin to understand its strengths and weaknesses and its function. And that is valuable being able to take that other perspective um, and not just being trapped inside a single discourse. I, I, I like the idea of like a conspiracy as well, because it doesn't pretend it has a, I, I think there's like a, there are good anthropological assumptions in a conspiracy that we all belong to a similar project. Right. And there's a sense of belonging in a conspiracy that I very much like. I think this also, this idea of like languages and group inclusion was a huge breakthrough for me because it was always very, it was very, um, you know, so, well, I think that sometimes when you deal with uh, value-based communities, right, which I would say, you know, various Christian communities are value-based, right? So they, they join together over a shared system of values instead of, a say, for example, not that other people don't have values. I'm saying that there are other communities like, you know, the tattoo community is not like a particular system necessarily of like ethical values. You know what I'm saying? Like there are some, but like it's mostly an appreciation of like tattoos and tattoo culture and the the secret language of the tattoo world. Right. And uh, I guess like realizing that people, for example, in value-based cultures will oftentimes use language, not as a way to, um, to re to like commit themselves to their values, but to commit themselves to their group. Right. Um, I think this is a particularly prevalent in conversations around things like, sexuality, uh, theology, you know, like particular theological disputes and stuff like that. It's important to recognize that oftentimes these things are a commitment to a community. They're not necessarily a commitment to a system of values. And I, that's not a bad thing. I think that's just like the way humans operate, you know? I, I kind of see it as like trading talking points is one common practice that human beings like to engage in. And it's it's like the sort of getting the satisfaction of acting out certain roles, which we, we've talked about this before, 
Um, but like certain language allows you to inhabit a role that you can derive enjoyment from. And of course, every role implies that other people are engaged in a certain relationship to you in that role. Um, and yes, so like language is a crucial part of inhabiting those particular roles. Um, you know, like when you try to impersonate somebody, you like try to do their voice and you try to pick the words just right. And, but like, if you're not impersonating, you actually like inhabit that space. Um, language is a crucial part of making yourself legible as this particular thing. Yes. And so you've got to advertise. I am X, Y, and Z, right? You advertise yourself to, uh, kind of like the people on the opposite end of it. Anyway, I think that that's, uh, I think we should leave it there. Um, that was a really good conversation. This, these ideas of knowledge as an exercise in legibility and especially like where we began with the idea of like states attempting to make their populations more legible for a variety of different reasons and the rise of high modernism and all that is very valuable. Uh, for anyone listening, I highly recommend this book, Seeing Like a State by uh james c scott it's it's been i mean i haven't finished it but it's been it's a very well-rounded very um very specific uh very um level-headed approach to a very complex topic you know he's not some pundit you know up on his soapbox but uh anyway recommend this book really liked our conversation matthew if you have any final thoughts yeah, there's um I haven't read the book, but there's a really great summary and engagement of it done by Scott Alexander over at Slate Star Codex. Um if you just look up scene like a state, Slate Star Codex, um you'll find his book review. Um and it's I think it's a really good summary and engagement with the main ideas um in the text. So it's that's definitely worth a read if you don't have time to read the whole book. Absolutely. And I'm always a fan of summaries. So it makes me feel like there's I can... no shame in summaries. No. You know what? We, we don't have the, we don't have the time or the bandwidth to read everything in life. So um, summaries are a way that people can um, tr- share labor, share the burden. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, before we go, um, I uh, just want to let everyone know that Matthew's had his shirt off the entire time we've been recording. So now that you've listened this far, you now know that that's the case. And I, uh, I like that for you. I like that now they, you have to. They say might that have to re-listen and oh. re-visualize the conversation. Oh, you think that they'd and like? They it. might even. They might even get something new to the conversation. You're saying, oh, see, I was thinking it was going to be like an offense, like, oh, this whole time he's been shirtless. But I mean, don't assume too much about our audience. They're pretty open-minded. That's folk. that's fair. That's fair. Absolutely. Well, anyway, until next time, Matthew. It was great. Great hanging out. Have a good night. Um, and everybody, don't forget to sign up for our Substack, um, suffermap.substack.com. And thanks for listening. We really appreciate your time. Bye. Bye.